Hello, animation fans, and welcome to another iAnimate podcast. This is your host, Larry Vasquez, and you're listening to episode 35. Um, I'm not sure if this is going to be 35A or part 1. Uh, regardless, though, this podcast will be split up into two podcasts. Uh, we had, uh, for this podcast, Steve Cunningham, a veteran in the industry, a longtime friend of Jason Ryan, Ted T, and... Uh, he had just a, a, a wealth of information, and so it made this podcast turn out a little longer than normal, which is great because it allowed me to split it up into two podcasts. So the second podcast will be released here maybe next uh, week or so. And um, but in the meantime, enjoy this uh, enjoy enjoy this podcast. That doesn't make any sense. How about if you enjoy this podcast? How about that? Um, I think you're going to really enjoy it. It's got some great insight and just neat history. All right, enjoy. Well, Steve, I appreciate you joining us on this podcast. I know we tried sometime late last year, and I dropped the ball. My wife and I just had our uh, brand new little baby. So, oh, congratulations! <laughs> thank you, thank you. So, yeah, I remember that was a, a bit of a crazy time up all night. So, I at least appreciate you doing this again and redeeming me on this podcast. So. Oh, no problem, no problem. It was a busy time for me as well. I think this worked out well for both of us. Well, let's jump in a little bit at your background, how you kind of uh, got into animation, how you were trained, and um, kind of go from there. Well, you know, as a kid, you always like cartoons and such, but I never really, I, I always loved to draw, and I used to draw a lot of um, superhero comics. You know, I was really into Spider-Man, and I would draw Spider-Man, but I never, never drew the backgrounds. Like if Spider-Man was swinging against the backdrop of buildings, I never drew the buildings. I was always interested in the character, and I Started to draw that way and then got uh, through high school. Still like to draw and, and you know, it, I was pretty good I mean, for my high school or elementary school. It wasn't great comparative to when I went to college, but certainly not too bad and, you know, good enough to, that I wanted to keep doing it. Because I think if you read, a, was it Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain video, where she talks about why most people draw like a 10-year-old, is because 10 years old is when people want to draw realism. And those who can't, stop. They give up. Uh, so I guess I was fortunate enough to be able to do that to a certain degree, and I kept going. And then when I got to high school, I became friendly with one of my uh, teachers. His name was Dan Barnells. He was funny. He was the only teacher that uh, let us call him Dan. He says, my name's Dan. If you're looking for Mr. Barnells, you know, his father <laughs> lives in England, right? So, and uh, and he had some, and I got, like I said, we got to be friendly, and I would hang out after school, and he would show me stuff. And he was quite a talented, accomplished artist in his own right. And he had some animation cells in his back room. I grew up in Canada, and this was Vancouver, suburb of Vancouver called Richmond at the time. Uh, and it was from a Canadian show called Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. And I didn't know what they were, you know, really. I mean, I kind of had an idea because you, you have a, a certain awareness. But he said, oh, there was an animation studio, I guess, that had gone bankrupt and donated some of these things to the school. So that was the first time I really kind of heard about animation in a sense of you can do this. Mm -hmm. You know, you watch cartoons and go to movies and stuff, but this is the first time I, you know, I held some, some drawings and cells and they were, they were lips on a cell level, an arm, a body, you know, it was all very limited TV animation. And, and I have, I had a few of those uh, folders. I gave them to a friend of mine, Mike Hogue actually uh, years later, but I kept them for a while. And then I sort of put that to bed and I was going to be, I was going to go into, I think at that time I was going to, I was interested in politics, which is weird now looking back. So, and then I was, after high school, I was working in a warehouse. I was going to work my way up in the company, you know, be either, whether that be a salesman or what. And I just, I just wasn't loving it, you know, driving a forklift. And, and my stepdad actually reminded me how I was interested in animation in high school. And, and would that be a career? He was an artist himself, um, liked to draw. And my family was very encouraging, which was very fortunate. I was, yeah. I was, uh, I was fortunate to have that. And so what I did, 
just based on the way I was brought up, you know, if you wanted something, you went for it. You know, this is where I used by my mom and my stepdad. And, and they, so what I did was I, I took the, it was a lunch break at the warehouse job. And I was lucky to live in a city that actually had animation, which I didn't know at the time, but I went to the yellow pages and I looked up animated studios <laughs> and I, I called them all. I called them all on reception and said, Hey, I, I'm interested in animation. Um, I'd love to come down and see what you do. Can you do it? And they all said no, except one. And I think the studio still exists. It's still in Vancouver. It's a studio called Studio B. And I talked to uh, Chris Bartleman, who was the owner at the time. I don't know if he's still involved. And he and his partner, Blair Peters, had this small animation studio. So what I did is I had some drawings from high school. I put them in a, like a paper portfolio. And I got on my bicycle. And I rode from Richmond to downtown, which I don't know, it was probably a half an hour ride. I don't recall at the time. And I showed him the drawings and he looked at me and says, these are terrible. And, uh, um, but saw something in them and told me that if I wanted two things, I remembered him telling me he said, if you want the best book on animation it was the illusion of life. Mm. And he showed me the, he had a copy there. It was just a small studio at that time. And they developed into quite a big studio actually. And then he said that you, if you really get serious about learning animation, you need to go to Sheridan college, which is the first time I'd ever heard of Sheridan college. And it was in Toronto. And to give you an example, I don't know how good your geography is, but Vancouver's kind of like north of Seattle and Toronto's north of Buffalo. Mm. So, uh, you know, I said, okay. And, and I, this is before the end of this is probably 1990, 1991. And so as it happened, I, I was able to go to Vancouver, to Toronto, um, for, you know, just for a reason at that point. And I, I called up the school again. I just called them. I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm in Toronto. I'm from Vancouver. I'm in Toronto and would love a tour of the school. I'm interested in your animation program. And I'm, and Wayne Gilbert was the uh, coordinator at that time of the program. And he gave me the tour. And, you know, it was great because I really got the feeling from him that he wanted me to go. And he didn't know me from anybody. I was just some high school kid or kid who had just graduated high school. And was very kind uh, and showed me around the school and, and then, you know, explained the portfolio requirements because you had to submit a portfolio to get in. So, okay, so that went well. And I went ended up back in Vancouver at the warehouse job. And what I did, I didn't have anything of the portfolio requirements. So I would get up an hour, like I think it was five or six o'clock in the morning, every day before work, and I would draw my sneakers or I would draw – a vase or I would draw the room or, you know, whatever I could do to fill the portfolio requirements mm -hmm. as best I could. You know, I did it before work and I did all this stuff and submitted it. Now in between submitting it and getting accepted, I sort of took a, a big sort of leap and I, I was able to get myself transferred from where I was working in a carpet warehouse to the Toronto office. I'm not going to say it's nepotism involved, but there was nepotism involved. <laughs> Um, I set that work for the company, pulled some things to get that to happen. So I, I was living in Toronto before I, I, after I had made the application to the school, but before I had knew whether I was accepted or not. So I'm in Toronto now, and I get a letter from the school. And it was a personal letter from uh, uh, Charlie Bonifacio, actually. This was the first time I'd ever encountered him. And, and he was saying that I had some talent, but if I don't follow directions, I'll never make it in this business. I don't have the letter anymore, but... Essentially, I had, I had failed to submit one of the portfolio requirements, uh. and he was giving me the opportunity to do that. And uh, so it was a, it was gesture drawings, and I didn't know what gesture drawings, whether it was a, a nude model or a live model, or what I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. So you know, he explained what it was, and I did those drawings, sent them off, and I was and I, I got accepted in the end. But looking back now, I went in 
right after, like the year I went to college was the year right before Beauty and the Beast, I think came out. Okay. And I think I, you know, just, I never found out specifically. Some of the kids in my class found out how they ranked because they rated all the portfolios. I never was interested because I kind of got the feeling that I just barely scraped in. <laughs> and I didn't really want to know that that was the truth. So I never found out. But if I had applied a year later, uh, I don't think I would have gotten in because when Beauty and the Beast came out, everybody became interested. Uh. It was such a huge hit. And they went from, I think they had about 900 applicants for 130 spots or wow. something of that nature. But after Beauty and the Beast, they had double the applicants for the same number of spots. <laughs> so I think my timing was very fortunate. And uh, and I ended up going there. I started school in 1992. Uh, and, and timing has you know, been – I've been very fortunate with timing throughout my career because you couldn't plan on how it worked out. Like, for example, in 94, uh, you know, Lion King came out. And when Lion King came out, it sort of changed the industry in the sense that they realized this was a huge, huge movie. I don't know what the final box office, but it was the biggest animated movie at that time. And that was 94, and it was a three-year program back then, so I graduated in 95. But between Lion King coming out and when I graduated, every studio wanted to get into animation. You had uh, Fox Animation, which was a, a transplant of the old Bluth group from Ireland. Then you had Turner that did Cats Don't Dance. They wanted in. Warners was starting up with, I think, Quest for Camelot was their first uh, Disney was hiring Canadians for the first time. All these things happened. So by the time I graduated, they were all hungry for people. Animators, yeah. Yeah, yeah animators. Well, not animators because in those days there was more of an apprenticeship. But so certainly they were hungry for animators, but they needed in-betweeners and cleaning okay. artists and, and people that start up. And really, when you think about it, school, it's different now. But when I went to college, the school prepared you to get an entry-level job. Now, I've known people that have gotten a job as animators right out of Sheridan College, but, you know, some of them have told me over the years that it was a big, big learning curve to step in as an animator, where I was started as a, as a rough in-between. And I've been lucky in the sense that I got summer jobs after first year and second year in animation through college. You know, my first job, well, the very first job I had it was in Alabama, and uh, I think Wayne pulled some strings to help me get me this job, Wayne Gilbert. And I got there, and I thought, you know, you start work at 9 o'clock. That's what I always thought. So I go down in Alabama and I, you know, it was like a, it was like a two week job. It wasn't much. And I was assistant to the director, which turned out to be just Xeroxing storyboard panels. But I thought it was all oh, cool. I'm assistant director, but no, it was, <laughs> you know, when you're young, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't recognize that sort of stuff. And I, and I'm sitting in the office waiting for the director to show up and Chuck Gamage, who's a, I don't know him very well, but my first introduction to him was, was quite aggressive. He said, who, I won't, I don't swear on your podcast. But he basically said, who are you? you know? <laughs> and he was the lead designer on that show. I don't remember what the show was, Tales from the Crypt Keeper or something like that. And I just, I just shrunk, you know, and I said, well, you know, I've got hired to do this thing. And, and, and it was just a very intimidating experience. And I quit that morning. I talked to the guy who had hired me. I forget his name. And he, he told me, he convinced me to stay through the end of the week and it, and it got better. And I, like I said, my job at that point was zero storyboard panels. And, and, you know, if you had a duplicate panel and, and just like a, a, an AD panel or something like that, that's what I was doing. And it was fine. And it was my first introduction to animation. And it was a two, two week thing. In the meantime, I had applied for other jobs, summer jobs. And um, this was after first year college. And I was working for my dad who had his own company at the time. And I got a call from a place called Cine Group in Montreal and they needed someone so again, you know, I, I took my, my drawings in the paper portfolio and hopped on a Via train, which goes from Toronto to, to Montreal, which is about a five hour train journey. And I have family in Montreal, so I stayed there. 
And I went in for the interview, and and it was like I said, it was really weird because I, I didn't have any introduction to what to expect or anything. And uh, it, the studio was in the basement of an old church building downtown Montreal. It was a beautiful building. I go meet the guy, and he's, he was kind of gruff. Uh, and I met, I think the head of the department was a guy named Sunny Hong at the time, and it was posing. It sort of, it wasn't, it was, I guess you could look at it as keyframe animation, but it wasn't really, it was called character layout. And they'd send the character layout poses to the studio in China, and they would animate. And my job was to help Sunny, like, they would freelance out, the posing and then Sonny would come back and put everything on model and it was too much for him to do by himself. So I would help him for that. And, you know, I was just out of first year, really very green and, and he was, you know, everyone there was really nice and, and, um, and, and really helpful. And, and I was assistant posing. I don't know what the title was, but I was making the biggest, most money I'd ever made in my life. I think it was $350 a week. Mm. And I was, I was, you know, living the dream. <laughs> and then I went back for second year and after second year, I got a job in Vancouver where I had grown up, uh, a place called Natterjack, working for Steve Evangelatos, um, doing cleanup in between. So it was a step up from system posing to cleanup in betweens. And, and that job, I was paid per drawing. I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit here, like, so forgive me, you know, how it worked out. But uh, if my narrative is meandering, it's uh, just as these things are reminding me. <laughs> so I was working for Steve Evangelatos, and I never, I never work with a watch on now. But what it was is he was paying me per drawing, and I was doing cleanup in-betweens. And you, and you had to flip paper. And every time I would flip the paper, I would roll my wrist and look at the time and realize how much money I wasn't making. You know, And, and I think it worked out, uh, was it $5 and in-between? I was getting $5 and in-between. And, and that was the most money I'd ever made. I was ending up doing between 15 and 20 a day. And that was, that was I think it worked out to about, yeah, about 500 bucks a week. And that was big, big money. And I'm staying on my best friend's couch. And, uh, was that stressful with that kind of, uh, situation where you're having to make X amount per in between? When I was hired for $4 in between and then Steve was kind enough, um, to recognize that I was freaking out a little bit and he, he showed me how to, how to do it. First of all, he showed me how to do it, how to in between properly. And then he bumped me up to $5 in between, but you know, you're young. I think I was 22 at the time, 21. And I didn't have a lot of expenses. I was staying on a couch. I was helping. I think okay. I was helping. Hope I was helping pay for groceries or something with my buddy because otherwise I, I owe him a big <laughs> I owe him a lot. <laughs> but, you know, you know, I, had, I took my bicycle. I was driving my bicycle all over the place. I didn't have a car, I, so it wasn't stressful in that sense. Okay, it was just sort of. It was a summer job in in the town I grew up, and I was seeing old friends, and it, it was a blast. I had a good time, and I almost <laughs> stayed and didn't go back to third year college. Um, but I, I did because. I wanted to, there wasn't a lot of animation, actual animation, feature animation being done in Canada at the time. And I knew you had to go to the States. So in order to go to the States, you know, you need to have an education. And it wasn't a, it was a diploma back then, not a degree program it is now. So I went back to third year and the, what I had learned from in betweening and stuff, and working with, with animators, I think Daniel LaFrance was an animator there and Steve Evangelatos was a brilliant guy. He had just come back from working on The Thief and the Cobbler. And that was, you know, and that was one of the first times I'd heard of that film, you know, and uh, so learning a lot of bit of the history and, and learning that certainly that I, I liked animation history and still do and, and uh, really like how these things evolve. So mm-hmm. learn a bit about that. Go back to third year with a little more uh, skill than I had finishing second year because I'd done the in-between. I'd done some, uh, I worked on my very first feature at that time doing some assistant work for a German film called Felidae. And I got my first production t-shirt. 
I've heard of this. I, this is where Jason worked on this one, huh? Yeah, actually, I found out years later that he worked on that. You know, he was in, I think, Ireland. I was in, in Vancouver. It was just a bit because Steve Evangelos had, had a relationship with the studio that was doing it, so he got a small chunk. And, I, and then the work I did was very minimal, but I got my first credit on a feature film, and I wore that production shirt every chance I got it through your college to tell, you know, sort of, uh, you're excited, and, and uh, you know, I guess maybe, maybe looking back, I was bit full of myself and I wore that shirt and I was like, yeah, I worked on a feature, you know, and it was, it was silly because I, I did so little on that, but it was fun. And then in third year I did some assignments and I, one of our teachers, Mark Simon, his brother, I knew, I didn't know him, but I knew of him that he was Bluth's top guy, Don Bluth's top guy at that time. One of the top guys anyway. And Mark was a great guy. He's a great guy. And I would ask him about Len. Hey, how's Len doing? Because I knew that they were moving to Arizona. At this time, I was—I I had an awareness that animation was starting to boom and that the timing crew worked out really well. And I would ask Mark about Len. How's the thing? How's the Blue Studio going? All this stuff. And Mark was great. He was very kind to me and told me all this stuff. And, and one day he came to me and said, hey, I told my brother Len about you. He wants you to send your stuff to them. So I did. Was well, It's all student stuff, life drawings and such. And uh, and I, I I got hired as rough in-betweener. This is where? This was in at Fox Animation in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. And this would have been, and I, after I graduated, I started their summer of 95, working on Anastasia. But there were about six of us from my class that, that went, because they were, like I said, Turner was hiring. I, think, I don't know if Turner hired any of our class, but Disney hired a couple layout guys. Uh, Ricardo Curtis, who was one of the most talented guys in our, in our, our class, went to Warner Brothers. And then six of us, I think it was Mike Hogue, myself, James Wood, Adam Beck, Jay Boos, who's doing, you know, they're all doing very well right now. Myself and this other fellow, Will Macro, we all got hired at uh, Fox as in-betweeners. I think Will went into layout. So there's a group of us. We didn't, we, you know, I don't know how tight we were at college. We all knew each other, so we're not going to a new city without knowing anyone. And, and we worked on Anastasia. And, and I landed there in the summer. I got off the plane. And it's like walking into a, a sauna because we're, it was a heat wave for Arizona at the time. But it was probably 120 degrees outside. <laughs> so for a Canadian kid, that was a bit of a, of a shock, but you know, I was just so excited to be doing it. And again, I made the most money I'd ever made in my life. And it was, it was, you know, I was doing pretty good. I had an apartment, got a car. And then there was a little bit of downtime between that and Bartok, if I'm remembering correctly. And they tested all the assistants to stay had a couple animation spots, junior spots. And, uh, and I barely squeaked in. I can say barely squeaked in cause that's how they said it to me, which is you know, <laughs> which, looking back was a bit cruel, I think, but, <laughs> but I made it. I was in a hit. Yeah, that's right. I, I made it. So I, for Titan 8, no, for Bartok the Magnificent, which was a spinoff of Anastasia and a director video, I was a junior animator, and I had the lowest footage in the department at the end of that show. And the way it worked at Blues uh, at the time is you had to do 100 feet of film to get full credit. And, I, I you know, I don't know uh, if everyone really understands the footage versus – because I think all the CG world is all frames now. But 100 feet, you know, is actually quite literally 100 feet. One foot of film is 16 frames, and everything's measured in footage. So 100 feet was 100 linear feet of film. And I think I got like 101 feet. Anything below, I think between 25 feet and 100 feet, you got additional animation credit. And anything less than that, I think you got an assistant or something. So I got my credit, which is very exciting. And then at Titan AE, uh, I was a full animator and, and, and doing, you know, just still learning, you know, and, and doing well and, and, you know, I think this is going to be great. We're going to, I'm going to retire in Phoenix. That time I met my wife and got married. Um, and I thought, this is my life. This is amazing. And then it didn't, didn't quite work out that way. And the studio folded. 
How much time did you have at the towards the end of the fold? Did you know things weren't going to go quite as well as you thought? Well, no, not really, because still at that time you were young. I mean, we had five years in Arizona, which which is good run. You know, looking back, uh, the industry is five years at one place is is really good. Yeah, and uh, but they had wanted, if my memory serves me, they'd wanted to have Don and Gary direct one film, and then another director, an external director, direct the next one. So Don and Gary would direct every other film. And they had another director that was directing a movie called Planet Ice, which evolved into Titan E. But it didn't it didn't go well. I don't know all the inner politics and stuff because, you know, I, I just wasn't privy to that stuff. But it didn't go well. And then Don came in and sort of saved that project, as you will, in a way. And Titan E was the result. And, you know, during the course of making that movie, Bill Mechanic, who really was a champion of the division, who was the head of Fox Studios, 20th Century Fox at the time, had a couple of missteps, I think, Anna and the King came out, Bike Club came out, movies that were good movies but didn't really resonate at the box office, and, mm. and he lost his job, and then we lost our champion for the animation division. Yeah. So that was sort of the uh, the first step of it, of it changing for us. We didn't have someone that was fighting for us anymore. And then uh, and then Titan A came out, and it didn't do well. It was uh, it was quite a disappointment, and, and at that point, you know, it, they had laid off a lot of the crew before the movie had come out. Um, I was fortunate enough to stay on with the small team, but fortunate maybe is a mixed word. But but I had stayed on. I was I was one of the junior guys. I think there were eleven or twelve people in the animation department from forty, that, and that was the biggest department when they laid everyone off. And I think if Titan A had really done well, they would have moved forward and tried to come up with a, a different model. And that was the intention of maybe do key shots and then farm out the other stuff. I don't know how it worked out, but Titan A didn't do well, and that was sort of the the death knell for the for the studio. Mm-hmm. And and then the, the disappointing thing about that was there was only one studio in town. So if you wanted to stay in animation, you had to move. And and I was just freshly married, and it was a tough it was a tough time, you know. And and there was a movie that someone had heard of. I think Kelly Bajan had heard of it called Eight Crazy Nights. This Adam Sandler thing. So we used to go play cards at, at different houses and stuff. The group that had remained had become come pretty close, and so we'd get together every now and then after, you know. When the studio was closed, we were all hanging around for a little bit, figuring out. And I did a test for Eight Crazy Nights, and and I got lucky. You know, they liked my test. And where were they located? They were located in Culver City, which was Los Angeles. So I flew out to see the studio, and my heart dropped because I, you know, they, it was sort of a evolved out of a television division. I had never worked in TV aside from little tiny bits in in Canada, but. I looked around, there's cubicles everywhere, it's all rented. I'm like, just, oh man, what, what's, you know, and I thought this was it. I thought I'm, I'm going to be out of animation. I, this is, I gave it everything I had and that was it. So I got this job and they, we listed our house in Phoenix when I flew out to look at the Crazy Night Studio and I called my wife from the airport coming home and she said our house just sold. So there's no going back then. So we moved and we came out, we looked for an apartment and we didn't know anyone in LA at the time. And you know, we did it. We moved. We found a place, an apartment. We moved, and I started in Eight Crazy Nights. I think uh, a week. And I was the second animator started. They had a guy, Andy Schuler, who was uh, had come from Iron Giant, young guy, and then they hired me. And the and the producer uh, quit or got fired, maybe quit like a week after I started there. And there was talk of shutting the whole thing down. I'm like, oh, I just sold my house and <laughs> my wife, living in an apartment in a part of LA that we weren't familiar with and didn't feel 100% safe. And it was scary, you know, it was scary. And then they hired um, Ken Samora as producer, and he was a good producer. And he hired Stefan Frank, 
who just come from Warner Brothers, and I've gotten to know Stefan quite well, and, and they they write at the ship, you know, and we redesigned the characters, and and I was I was uh, made a supervisor on that show, or lead on that on the main character of that movie, and um, and it was a it was, it was not a great movie, but it was a great experience, and and I met a lot of really fantastic people, and uh, so I loved I loved the experience overall. I wish the movie were better, not necessarily from a an artistic standpoint, because it was what it was. It was farmed out all over the world. But if I were to pitch you the story, the story's very good, I thought. But then it was it was sort of layered on top of with uh, Adam Sandler's humor, which, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily my cup of tea. But I, I thought it really, in some ways, in my opinion, undermined the, the sincerity of the story, the actual story. Right. But it was a one-off picture. They created the studio. Adam Sandler wanted to make an animated movie, and he had a lot of power at the time. And he, so he created this studio called Meatball Studio. Uh, he had a dog named Meatball, and this was Meatball Animation Studios. <laughs> and uh, and they made this movie, and, and I think it was about 14 months worth of work, or maybe a little more, 16 months. And again, made some, met some fantastic people uh, that I still am friends with, with a lot of them today. And some of those people, one guy, uh, Tony Costanella, had worked at DreamWorks. And he wanted to advance his career, so he left Dreamers to come to Creative Nights for a better position. And I got to know him pretty well. And and he was good friends with a fellow named Bruce Seifert. And and Bruce was running the animation department on at DreamWorks at the time. And this was Dreamer. They were just finishing up Spirit. And uh, I had applied to Dreamers after the Fox thing fell apart and never heard back. So through Tony's connection with Bruce, Tony was very kind and spoke highly of me that I needed, they needed to hire me. And I got a hold of another Dreamers guy there, a Danish fellow whose name I've forgotten, put me in touch with Christoph Saran, who was one of their top animators at the yeah. time. And I, I called Christoph and I actually got him. He answered his phone because he's a busy guy. And he recognized my name because, hey, we tried to hire you after Fox, but there was some miscommunication. He said, I'm looking at, I got your resume and, and reel right here. It was on a shelf. So again, through another fortunate circumstance, I got hired at DreamWorks for Sinbad, and I say fortunate because at that time, they were sort of letting people go from spirit, so they hired me and, and let some other people go, and, and uh, you know, and I feel, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, I think, you know, that's some good good word of mouth, but also very, very fortunate, you know, I, I hadn't been, you know, I was a lead on Eight Crazy Nights, but I don't know what that meant, you know, because it wasn't a traditional, it wasn't at a high-end studio like a, a you know, Disney, or, Disney or, or anything like that. And so they hired me to work on Sinbad doing, and I worked with, the, I found I was working with this guy named Rudolph Canadan, who I had heard stories about this guy and how brutal he could have been with his criticism and stuff. And I was scared <laughs> because, you know, I just come from the, you know, not that far earlier from the Fox thing falling apart and then working in crazy nights and doing well in any crazy nights, but recognizing that it wasn't, at the same level as certainly as the, as the Disney DreamWorks movies. And now I started at DreamWorks and uh, I remember my wife saying, how was your first day or first week? And, and, I, and I, I was in a fog because every office you looked in was the best animators in the business. And I'm like, what am I doing here? Because these guys, I didn't necessarily know a lot of them by name or reputation because DreamWorks at that time didn't promote their artists like Disney did, but they were all absolutely brilliant. And, and I was lucky enough to work with one of the more brilliant ones in, in Rudolph. And we got along great. And, and I learned so much from him. And he is, he is one of the pure animation talents that I can think of. You know, design, story, animation, act, directing. He is the real deal. And, you know, I think 
in this business. I've come across a few people who are the real deal, and I find that that I'm just I'm just faking it. You know, I'm 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 pretending next to these guys, and <laughs> and you know, worked on Proteus with him, and I got the chance to work with Dan Wagner a little bit on Eris, who was the Michelle Pfeiffer character, and and it was a positive experience for me. Uh, I did well, you know, I was doing some good footage and they seemed to be happy with the work I was doing. And, and again, to work in that environment, like, you know, you're, you're now at a place, Disney dreamers, that caliber, and I'm working against alongside these guys and I was scared to death and, and yet I was doing okay, you know, and, and, but again, at, at that point, everything was going CG. Toy Story had come out and changed, changed everything. And dreamers was transitioning to CG and I just had a one picture deal. And I thought, I, I don't know if I can, if they're going to keep me. I was just new. They had all these talented artists who had been there for five, five, seven years at that time. And, and they did keep me and train me in Maya. And that was sort of my transition into CG. And that, I guess, comes to a, a close of my, my sort of 2D. <laughs> I think when I think back to your original question, that was about the traditional background. Um, How important was it? Or let me, let me ask this. What would you say was, um, your your special magic or secret sauce during that time when you're saying you know, you're in this environment with these very talented artists, you weren't sure how things were going to kind of continue, but yet here you are. What would what was kind of going through your mind then during that time to keep you going and to keep to keep you moving forward? Well, I, I don't know if there's anything going through my mind per se, which a lot of people agree with that my mind was pretty empty <laughs> in the sense that I, I didn't, I didn't really realize that I shouldn't have been there. You know, I, it, it didn't really dawn me. I was, I just sort of, I tried to just, you know, look to them. I remember Charlie again in college and he's been a big influence in my career. There's a Ricardo Curtis was a, is a brilliant, brilliant artist. And even in college, he was head and shoulders draftsmanship wise. And I would look at it and I'd get depressed. And he said, why would you be depressed by this? You should let it inspire you. Mm. And so when I was working along these, these, these people at DreamWorks, I, I tried to be inspired. I don't know how successful I was, but I tried to be inspired and, and not be, tried not to be as intimidated by that and just try and draw inspiration. It didn't, it, it didn't hurt that I was paired with Rudolph and he was, you know, he really knew what he was doing in the sense that his sensibilities for animation were in line with the director. So if Rudolph approved your shot to show the director, you're pretty much 98% going to get the shot approved. Okay. So, so I was, you know, it was good in that sense that if he said, do this, do this, do this, you were pretty confident that it was going to go through. And, and, you know, and I asked a lot of questions, you know, I, uh, I had a gen, have a genuine thirst for knowledge for this stuff. And I would read about animation all the time and I would go to the mall and draw and And I just, I would just wanted to get better and knew that I had to get better to survive. Okay. Because, well, you know, I, like I said, I could draw fairly well, and I was a fairly good draftsman in 2D, but but not to the caliber of these other people. And I knew that I have to work at it. I couldn't just – I just wasn't blessed with with the natural talent that, I, that my impression at that time was a lot of people had. Now that you can't – you can't. It's hard to say that now because everyone has their own journey, and, and I don't want to discount how hard other people worked. I can't say, well, that guy's talented, and therefore I'll never be as good because – I don't know how hard they worked to get to that point. Right. To get to that point. And so I had to, you know, I just, I just wanted to, I, I, I loved it. You know, when you looked at, when I was in between at, at, at Fox, we, there was about, I don't know, about 15 or 20 in-betweeners and you would work with all the animators and you get, and I, I started to collect binders. I still have, I'm looking at them right now where if you had like say one of Len Simon's shots, who's exceptional. 
you would see the drawing and maybe there's a beautiful expression or, or the way he designed his drapery on that, on that piece of paper or line of action or any of the principles that say that. And I would take that drawing and I would Xerox it. And I would put it in categories in these binders that like one would be line of action, others would be expressions, one would be drapery. And I had one for sort of smear frames. And I, and for, like John Hill was fantastic at those smear frames. And I would build a, a library of these and I would stare at these drawings. You know. That's cool. Why is this drawing so good? And then I was also had the, the benefit of working with some animators who weren't necessarily as, as good. And what, when I had some of their drawings come across my desk, I would put a clean sheet of paper down over top and I would try to make that drawing better. And sometimes I didn't, sometimes I didn't. I wouldn't spend a lot of time, 20 minutes or something because, you know, we had quotas and such. And then I would throw it away because, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't out there to disrespect anyone. It was just a question of, you know, what, why what would this, you have done? Yeah. Why, yeah. Why is this drawing so good and this one isn't? And so I would do that a lot. And so even today, you know, when I, I, when I look at some of Mark Davis's drawings from Sleeping Beauty and I just, you stare at them, you know, like, wow. And, and I did that a lot. And so I tried to, you know, tried to, to balance the sense of, okay, these are drawings in motion. So they have to work in concert with each other. But at the same time, each drawing is important. And I, I mean, it was just, it's, like I said, I just had a, I just loved it, you know, and I was, in a lot of ways, I feel I was 2D animation was good for me because I love to draw, but I never drew on my, for myself. Never had as much imagination as other people had, but I love to draw. And I love the craft of, of 2D animation in terms of how to, how to manage it. And I, I was, I've, I've been very, uh, I know I've been saying fortunate a lot, but it's true. I've been very fortunate in the people that I've encountered in my career who've been kind enough to share their time and experience with me. And, you know, Troy Saliba really showed me a lot about the actual nuts and bolts of animation. At college, you 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 get an assignment, you do it. But Troy would, you know, I did an assignment with Troy, just a test at Fox, and I didn't number any of my drawings, and they were all just images, uh, sequential drawings. But there was no correlation to what frame they, these drawings would appear on. So the, the sense of time, you said, what happens if you're walking to the line tester and you drop these papers? you're not going to know what order they go in. And he really spent time with me and sort of taught me or certainly put me on the right path of, you know, how to, how to, if you have a shot in the summit, it's a five foot shot and you have to get it done by Friday and say, okay, well, you know, your first drawing is frame one and you know, your last drawing is frame 81 for five feet. So, you know, those two drawings need to happen. You know, when they need to happen, not only what they should look like, because if you have hookups on either side, you know, from the previous shot or the following shot, you know where your character needs to be. And you know when they need to be there. So then, and then he sort of taught me that and said, if you break it down on 16s or, you know, five foot shot and represent, you could represent that as five drawings. And if you can do that and that tells your story and then you break it down to, to eights and then possibly fours and put half charts on halves to, for the in-betweener. So the in-between only does halves. If you've done your job, I, now I understand this, Larry, I'm, I'm really simplifying this stuff, but if you can think that way, just as in terms of, of managing the actual craft of it, then you could you could really be productive. And I'm not trying to suggest that that's simple because it's not, but it certainly introduced me to that way of thinking. And then working with the Bluth people, they did a lot of that stuff. And I would read old Dan Kester notes. And again, Charlie was let me a lot of his notes when I was in college. And so I really tried to, to learn. And I still work that way today. It, you know, the, the, the challenging part about working that way is knowing when to break free of it. You know, knowing when to say, okay, I like to work fours, but you know what? Maybe this section of my shot needs to be on fives or threes or a random thing. It's, it's learning when to, when to use that efficiently and when to say, you know what? 
the only thing that really matters is what ends up on screen. No one cares if I'm on fours or eights or whatever. <laughs> and so it's that decision-making process to say when to abandon that workflow or when you look at your shot and say, you know what, I would normally do it this way, but I think this this shot is asking me to do to work a certain way. Right, right. Way. So I think that's the hardest part. I was married to that for a long time, that way of working. But now I try and be a little more open to to different things. Okay. So that, that at least kind of helped keep you on track then. It certainly helped with my quota because, you know, again, on Bartok, I had the lowest quota in the department and uh, it, it helped me become more organized in my workflow. Right, right. And you said that's transitioned as well into CG? Yeah. How do you, how does that transition for CG for you? The transition to CG on Shark Tale was hard for me because, um, and I think it was hard for a lot of the 2D guys because Dreamers trained us. They had a few people that knew CG, but for the most part, they trained us all. And I struggled a lot because I asked a lot of questions. You know, I didn't want to ask the same question more than more than once, so I would write down answers. And I and I was trying to learn, but also, you know, when you're used to drawing, you can you're not handicapped by what a model can do or a rig can do. Right. Or certainly, you know, you can cheat a lot more of drawing. You can make a nice drawing to to, to camera, and it doesn't look good in any other angles, but in CG, I found that if you did that too much, it would break lighting and you would cast shadows and, and you really had to work more three-dimensionally. And, and the hardest part for me was making friends with the curve editor. <laughs> and once I got an understanding of that, it, a lot of pieces fell into place, but it was a tough grind for me. I think my first shot, which is a very little tiny shot, took six weeks. It was probably 40 frames, you know? Was that the same time as Ted T? He came a little later. Okay. Uh, on the end of Shark Tale, um, but not too far. I think I don't know if you came halfway through production or a little earlier than that. But uh, so you'd started already since you were. I had started on. I was certainly I was a dreamer for about a year and a half before. Okay. Okay. But we became good friends because he's from Montreal and I was born in Montreal and he's a hockey guy and I'm a hockey guy. We're both goalies and we're both fans of the same team. So. <laughs> So we became very good friends very quickly, and Ted's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. He's obviously one of our instructors, but I've also had him in the podcast. So then you made that transition. Was there any apprehensiveness for you, or did you just feel like, hey, if I'm going to continue to animate, this is what I need to do, or how did that work for that transition for you? Well, yeah, there was a little bit of a practical approach. You know, I, I, At that point, it was very clear that, that traditional animation was, um, in the way we knew it anyway, was, was evolving. Uh, and I've never been an adventurous person in the sense that I, I wanted to backpack over Europe and follow the work, you know, and I was married at the time, and and I thought that was unfair to ask my wife to do that, and again, it wasn't that kind of personality anyway, and, and DreamWorks was a great company to work for, so I looked at it, and I thought, well, uh, this is the future, and, you know, what do they say, evolve or fade away, and I didn't want to fade away. I, I still loved animation, and this was a, and I didn't get into animation to work on computers, but I figured working on computers was better than not working at all. And so, yeah, it was hard to swallow. It was very, like a lot of frustration because the things I could do in 2D, I couldn't do anymore. But it offered different challenges in different ways. You know, I really miss traditional animation in a lot of ways. But in some other ways, I forget about the things like the paper cuts that you get between your fingers. <laughs> and, and then having to animate little, you know, one-inch tall characters in the, by the pegs. I mean, you know, you forget all that stuff. It's a bit more romantic now. <laughs> but there are things about CG animation that I... I really love as well. Uh, you can get so much more, you have so much more control over the subtleties of, you know, expressions and, and things like that in CG. And you're not as restricted by um, draftsmanship or certainly, you know, one of the things I look at in, in terms of CG versus 2D is that in 2D, 
when your animation leaves your desk, the difference between there and when it goes on screen is it goes through other iterations. It goes through a cleanup artist who interprets your drawings and puts the line. So the cleanup artist, their drawings end up on screen, not mine. And then it goes through effects and you know, so it, I, in some ways, the, how true it is to what you, when it leaves your desk, degrades between that point when it hits the screen. Whereas in CG, I find a lot of times it gets better. And also my performance and my poses are, are closer to what ends up on screen in CG than they are in 2D because, okay. you know, they, they bake up the models and then they put the effects on it and everything else like that. But, but the animation as it leaves my desk gets to screen as opposed to someone's interpretation going through a cleaner department called, ah, you know, I worked so hard on that and they comped it wrong or they, um, you know, they, they change the length of something or change the overlap. You know, you, you sort of lose that sense of control. So I like that my performance gets more on screen now than in 2D. Okay. But I, I do miss the smell of that paper and pencil, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> what from your 2D time and, and training do you, do you bring into your CG that maybe kind of uh, propelled you in your CG, not coming from a CG background? Okay, let me try this again. Yeah. What from your 2D background do you take into your CG in regards to maybe silhouettes or getting clean um, poses, things like that, that, that helped you? Um, I don't know how to properly answer that question because all I've known was what I learned in 2D. I, 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 it's because I didn't train as a CG animator off the start. I don't know how okay. to differentiate. I think that, you know, the biggest challenge was again, the curve and the fact that all these poses that you're building in the computer are connected through the curves. Like for when a, one other, so you can get gimbal lock and flipping and stuff. But I think that by and large, the, all the, the, you know, the silhouette, the posing and everything else, uh, remains from, from the initial training. I think what CG has allowed me to do is, and like I said, I, I, I was a fair draftsman and I enjoyed drafting the drawings and everything else, but it sort of frees you up to, to really focus more on the performance. And you can go off model in CG characters for sure. But I, th I think being in CG has allowed me to, to try and focus more on the performance. Okay. And so I, I try not to get too bogged down in the what they say that you know I have this sort of love hate relationship with the principles of animation, but <laughs> trying to get I try not to get too bogged down in all those sort of animation guidelines and rules. Okay, you know, like if I if I can craft a performance that is genuine and authentic and really connects with the character at that moment in the film, if there's a tangent here and there or uh, something of that nature becomes almost secondary to the fact that I've created, I've crafted this performance. Now, if I can fix the tangent without affecting the performance, that's great. But if it's going to change the feeling of the shot by, by adhering to these animation principles, I, you know, I don't know for me if that really is such a focal point anymore. Like I said, I, I'd rather have a, a, a shot that, that connects with an audience that says something that really has a moment. And if there's flaws in it, that's great. You know, I, I heard a quote, not that long, I like quotes and stuff too, and I think that, I forget the exact quote, but it was something like, excellence is, lives in the imperfections, something of that nature, okay. you know. And so when you watch people in life and everyday life, you know, they, they don't always walk with perfect silhouettes, and they don't always, now, these are all principles that we take into account because, you know, we are not using our bodies as our instrument. We're, we're puppeteers in a lot of ways, but but I think, again, in the difference between 2D and CG is that I try really to focus on crafting the performance first. 
And secondary to that is all those sort of the principles. And, you know, it all comes into account, but I think it, it's sort of more lives in my subconscious now. But, you know, when I look at scenes and they're very anticipation, like I, I'm aware of all the principles. When I see shots like that, it sort of takes me out of it. Even though it might be well executed, it's just, it's it, it can be superficial. Okay. Yeah, I know, Larry, I'm not really answering your question, but but I, I do think that the CG really has allowed me to, you know, try and animate moments, not not poses. Does that make sense? Yeah, does that, because it seems to me then that it becomes more like um, live action then, because you don't think of an actor going, okay, well, am I making a clear pose right now? They're, they're trying to communicate this performance, this mood, this, whether it be comedy or uh, sincerity, they are right. trying to look, okay, is my body positioned correctly to, and so, um, that's kind of what I'm getting from you. Is that correct? Where it's more about what's being communicated rather than how the right. body is necessarily positioned. Right. Right. Well, yes and no. Uh, you know, an actor, a good actor, you, because they use their body as their instrument, let's say they are aware of all those things. Like if you have a, a an actor, live action actor trying to dominate another actor, they assume a posture of body language that does it, but the overall feeling is dominance. Right. Or whatever it is. Yeah. So if I'm going to animate that same shot, you know, I want I, I'm constantly thinking of dominance is the is the is the overall story point. If that's the statement I'm trying to make, I'm going to try and create craft poses and body language and, and mechanics that 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 support that 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 driving statement. And you know, I build from that way. Like I'm not I'm not building. You know, I'm not hoping that my poses create a sense of dominance. Like that is my overall thought process. Right. And then everything else, all the decisions that are made after that one are in support of the overall statement that I'm trying to make. You know, because when you're animating a shot or, or crafting a performance, you're, you know, especially crafting a performance, you're, you're, you're saying something and, you know, how strongly are you saying it? And how strongly does that statement need to be made in the overall context of the movie? You know, um, and, and so you take all that stuff into account. So I'm not I'm not saying to to disregard all the principles. I'm just saying that I, I try not, at this point in my career anyway, and it changes all the time. I'm not starting with the principles of animation. I'm starting with the the intention of the moment, uh, what the director has asked this this shot to be in context of the story, and then letting everything else fall underneath that. Okay, including the principles of animation. You know, like if I can, if I if let's say for example the uh, the attitude of the shot is something really happy and bouncy, then then the bouncing ball becomes important aspect of that shot, but, but supportive to the fact that I want a happy, high energy performance. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're starting, you you're, starting with, <laughs> you're starting with the overall idea and letting those principles then lead up to that rather than. Right. Numbers. Right, right, right. And so, you know, if, if, and if that sense, you know, cause I think sometimes I would rather look at a piece of animation that, affects me emotionally in some way that maybe isn't perfect versus a perfectly executed piece of animation that, that is empty. It's like eating food that you you don't remember. You know, it's like it's something you remember, like you're enjoying at the moment. Oh, that's great. And then afterwards, how was that? You're like, I don't, I don't really remember. You know, I'd rather have something a little bit, I mean, ideally you want both. You right. want something well-crafted that, that really moves you. But if I had to choose between something that is entertaining and, and really connects with me and something that is more technically perfect, I'll choose the entertainment side because that's why we do these things. I mean, we're in the entertainment business and I kind of I like, as I get older, I like those imperfections. And I think that sort of frustrates my supervisors sometimes because they don't like <laughs> it as much as I do. But, uh, you know, 
I think that 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 texture in there is it could be fun. You know, you can play with that. I've mentioned on this on, on our podcast before, probably this quote many times here. This is when Jamal Bradley was still over at mm. uh, Disney, and I had a chance to visit him there and such. And he had this picture he had drawn, and it was off of something that Glenn Keane had mentioned. And mm. basically, I think it was Ollie Johnson or somebody had Glenn Keane had shown his animation to, and he was yeah. just super happy about how well executed the animation was. Right. And Ollie Johnson was like, yeah, but it doesn't entertain me. Yeah. And that was the focus was that you're going, yeah, this is awesome animation, but the entertainment's not there. Kind of goes back to what you're saying. You know, you can have a, a plate of food arranged like a five-star hotel, but if it's not, if it's still kind of bland, it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. Exactly. You know, uh, uh, yeah, I guess there's a, a, a famous sort of, or Glenn King quote says that, you know, he used to think animation was about moving character on the screen. And now he thinks animation is more about moving an audience. And when you're young, you look at that and go, Oh, that's so bad. Flowery and stuff, but you know what? Really, it's true. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. And and you know, I'm I'm always sort of obsessing, I guess you could say, about what it means to be an animator and what we do really. Because sometimes, you know, I go down the rabbit hole and 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 it leads me to some weird places. And other times, when I step back and say, you know what, this isn't rocket science. And you know, our job, and I sort of come to the conclusion that our our job as animators is to entertain and to craft performances that work with our fellow animators performances to tell a story. And that's basically it. So yeah, entertain, we're in the entertainment business. We're not in the animation principal business. We're not even in the story business, you know, in the sense like if you watch, we've all seen movies that you look at, the story was ant, but really love the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've been to movies that the story was great and you just weren't, you didn't connect with it in some way, you know? So what's more successful as a film? If you're a producer, you want the more, commercially successful movie. You want people to come out of your theater, out of the theater and go, you know what, that was worth my 15 bucks and I'm worth my two hours time. That's, that's yes. the goal and that's the entertainment. Yeah. So we are in the entertainment business and that's why when you're building an animated performance, you want to try and make sure that it's something somebody is going to enjoy watching. That's a great point. Yep. Yep. All right. That is the end of part one of the podcast with Steve Cunningham. Check back at iAnimate.net for the second part coming out in about a week. Take care. Take care.